Judges chapter 6, um, just kind of, this is actually one of the lessons from this youth rally. It's one of the first ones um, because um, I thought it was appropriate for us too. I, of course, any lesson from anywhere in Scripture is appropriate for us too. But uh, we're going to be looking at uh, comparing this to a New Testament passage. And here's the New Testament passage. Uh, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh or live in the world... Walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but they are divine power to demolish strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience um, when your, dis- your obedience is complete. Here's what he's saying to us. We, don't, we live in the war- world, but we don't fight like the world does. That doesn't mean we don't fight. It's just that we fight different. Kingdom of God people fight different. And this week, your assignment is fight the world all week long the way God wants you to. Use his weapons rather than the world's. Now, we're going to be looking at this from the vantage point of Gideon. We're not, going to see, we're not going to read the whole story. It's a big, long story in Scripture, and you know most of it. We do a VBS you know, about Gideon every once in a while. And, and the main enemy is the Midianites. The Midianites are the worldly power that are over them at this particular time. All we know about the Midianites for real is that they're camel-riding people, which doesn't sound too vicious to me. You just everybody riding around in camels doesn't sound like a vicious thing to be feared, right? But they are a fearful group of people, and they'll swoop in. They'll swoop in on Israel while they're gardening. You know, when their corn comes up and it's about ready to pick, here they come. The enemy marauders come in and steal all the food. And so they are, here they've done all the raising, and they've done all the stuff they're supposed to do, but when it comes time to reap the harvest, uh, the enemy takes it. Which explains what Gideon's doing. This is a wine press. It's just kind of a hole in the ground with, a, with another one in the middle dug out. Now, of course, you should know this. A wine pr- we don't know about wine in Churches of Christ, right? We try to stay away from it. We don't even talk about it. We act like it's not even there. But what is a wine press? What are you supposed to walk on when you're in a wine press? Grapes, right? You squash the grapes barefooted, right? And then it oozes out into that little thing, and it has a little tube that takes it out, and that's their wine. But that's not what Gideon's doing in this little thing. He's actually beating out like the wheat, right? You're supposed to do that in the wide open where there's lots of air to let it go. But why is he hiding there? Why is he in a wine press dealing with grain? Well, he's hiding because these camel-riding marauders come around. I don't know. I'd like to enact a sound of a camel, but I have no idea what it says. I know they spit, right? So maybe they're just... And here they come. They, they come in these big... Mo- and and you've got you to gotta be in hiding. And so there he is. And this is kind of like the... First of all, that's kind of a funny thing. And then here's Gideon. He's in that wine press, and he's doing the grain thing. Because this other nation of people overpowered God's people. And by the way, we will always be outnumbered and overpowered and opposed in the world. We are always going to be that way. It's not physically painful for us, but our truths, the thing that we celebrate when we come together every Sunday, every Wednesday, the truths that we review and we want to live our lives by, the worldview that we want to live out of, is so mocked and ridiculed by our world, it's not even funny, and we know it. The moment we leave this building, we will be inundated with the world's views of things. 
So we're getting beat up too, just like they were back then. And so God approaches Gideon here in just a moment, but here's going to be the principle of the story. I'm just going to tell you right at the very beginning. Here's the lesson we're supposed to learn. The way we fight is by shining our light. That sounds so puny. The world has Uzis. Have you seen an Uzi? Little bitty machine gun. Uzi. AR-15. You seen one of them? You seen tanks? Aircraft? The stuff they can do with the Moab, the mother of all bombs, shock and awe. That's the world's weaponry and intimidation and abuse. In the midst of all that, the weapons we use is shining our light. We go out and we sing our battle anthem. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it. This is our battle strategy. This little light of mine. I'm, and do you ever feel like, are you kidding me? You think that is going to fight our battle? You can think that's going to win our war? That's going to actually change the world? Just going out and letting our little light shine? You know, you know what God says? That's exactly what I'm sending you out with. And the reason I think he does this, maybe, at least I'm going to make this argument, is that God wants to make sure that we know it's him. So God's battle strategy, he comes and he visits Gideon. Gideon is hunkered down in this wine press, beating out grain, and God comes to him in the form of the angel of the Lord, and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And uh, Gideon kind of goes, me? Me? You talking to me? You ever heard that line? Anybody ever heard that line? Gideon doesn't see himself that way. I'm from the smallest family and the smallest clan and the smallest tribe. He doesn't see himself that way, but God calls him mighty warrior. And you're like, are you looking? No, he's not looking the same way that we are. And he starts making excuses. And he has a little lack of faith, and he does these tests with God with these fleece that we're not going to look at. The fleece gets wet, and then the fleece stays dry. But God's proving his presence to this very, this very feeble, feeble-faithed person. But God finally convinces him. And the stage is set. Gideon's willing to fight for God. He's thinking, are we going to get any people? And God inspires people, apparently, because he has 32,000. Chapter 7 is where we are. Chapter 7 has 32,000 people of the Israelites willing to fight. Now, that's not great numbers, but it's not bad either. And God looks at Gideon, and he says, Gideon, this won't do. we got to whittle this down. And Gideon's going, we're already outnumbered, God, and I'm a puny warrior, and, and I've got some numbers here that might actually make a dent in this battle, and you're going to whittle them down? That's right. You tell them, if anybody's afraid, if anybody has any bit of fear about this war at all, y'all just go home. If you're trembling, just go home. And a bunch of them did. 22,000 of them went home. 10,000. Okay, that's not good, but that's still not terrible. God says, no, nope, that's not going to do either, Gideon. They're going to think it's them. So we've got to whittle this down some more. So you take them by the river and you tell them all get a drink. And if they, if they get down on all fours like a dog and lick that water from the river, you send them home. And there's 300, and le- 300 left. There's 9,700 of them that go home. And God says, okay, 300, we're going to do this. Gideon had to be beside himself. There is no way this makes any sense at all. But here's a principle 
Here's a principle of God that operates all the time. Next screen. Yeah, there it is. God wants you to do it, but he wants you to know that it wasn't you who did it. This is always God's way. Today, too. God wants you to do it, but he wants you to know it wasn't you who did it. It has to be a little bit unexplainable. It has to be a little bit unbelievable to you how this thing worked out. It's two things. He won't do it without you. You'd like him to. God, let me just pray and you do this. I'd like you to. And and God is kind of like with Randy, who's big into missions. I want to say, God, if you want people to know the gospel, you go tell them. You go tell them. You're all over the world all the time. You go. God will not do it without us. That's one of the flaws of his plan. That's terrible to say on a Sunday night. A flaw of his plan. He won't do it without you, but you can't do it without him. And those things need to be kept together. And the point of this is that God says, I want you to do it, I want you to do it, but I want you to know it wasn't you who did it. And God keeps this possibility always open to you. How does he sustain that balance? Because of this, God will ask you to do things that are insufficient, irrelevant, and terribly lacking. This is really, I'm digging a hole here, aren't I? God asks you to do things that are insufficient, irrelevant, and terribly lacking. Let me give you an example. When he starts out Romans, he says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God. It's the power of God to save. Do you know what the Corinthians called it? It's foolishness. You know what the Jews called it? Totally ridiculous. It's a stumbling block. There's no way anybody can believe this. God chooses to save the world. If they're going to be saved, if they're going to be saved from their sin, they must do it through believing in this crazy story we call the gospel. And it is the biggest stumbling block in the history of the world because the story is so outrageous. Am I overstating this, Randy? It's outrageous. A God who comes into the story himself and he doesn't do some incredibly amazing things and then win the world. No, he does amazingly crazy things that are only explained by the fact that he is God come to earth and then he lets that creation kill him. Such a weak story. And then he rises from the dead and God says, you've got to believe that. If you want to be saved, you must believe that and embody that in your life. Only God could come up with something like that. I'm telling you, he's used to this. And so here's, here's the thing. As the story progresses, and you know the rest of the story, right? It gets just really bizarre, and we're going to read this. We're in chapter 7, Judges chapter 7. Still too many, he does all that. Verse 9, that same night the Lord said to him, he still felt, you know, after he went from 32,000 to 300, Gideon was a little bit nervous. Imagine that. And God could, dis- could tell that he was a little bit nervous. And so he says in verse 9, I tell you, rise, go to the camp. I have given it to your hand. I'm, I'm giving you this battle, but don't take my word for it. If you're afraid to go down there, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. 
I want you to take a servant with you, and I want you to hear. I want you to eavesdrop on something. Now, notice he didn't say, I want you to uh, take note of what you see, because what he hears is after what he sees, and what he sees is terrifying. But I want you to listen to what is said, the words. I want you to eavesdrop, which means I want you to listen in on something. And so he takes Purah, right? The outpost of armed men who were in the camp, the Midianites, and it wasn't just the Midianites, Amalekites, and it wasn't just the Amalekites, all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, more than the grains of sand on the seashore. So before he gets to hear, he gets to see, and it's terrifying. There are people laying out there on the open field getting some sleep like you wouldn't believe. They are vastly outnumbered. And then they've got camels out there. You can't even count all the camels. And he looks and his eyes get huge. But God said, I'm not, tell, I'm not sending you down there to see what they do. I want you to hear. I want you to listen to what we hear. And I want to say this to you. If we always judge from what we see, we'll always be terrified. If we judge this world and its power by what we see, we'll be terrified. We must trust what we hear from God more than what we see in the world. It has to be that way because we will always be overnumbered, outnumbered. So he sends them down there. And this story gets just, it, it just gets weird. Here we go. Keep going. When he came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. Of all the dreams in Scripture, this is the most ridiculous. A cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down and the tent lay flat. A bread roll. We're in the camp, there's our camp, and here comes a, this is a roll, this is a flat cake of barley bread, and it rolls into the camp and runs into the tent and turns the tent upside down. Ouch, see, yeah. Now this is a strange thing. God, God has always used dreams. He's sent dreams to his own people, Jacob. He sent dreams to unbelieving people like Pharaoh and Daniel or and Nebuchadnezzar, and he had his own people interpret them. But here's what's going to happen in this story. He sends the enemy, the unbelieving enemy, a dream, and then he sends them a fellow unbeliever who interprets the dream, and all that Gideon does is overhear the interpretation. And it is absurd. How many of you have ever dreamed you went to school or work naked? The rest of you are lying because everybody has this. I can tell you what that dream means. You're afraid of, of people knowing you too well, right? You, you, especially if you're about to do public speaking and people are terrified of public speaking. And you'll have that dream because you're like, I'm afraid to be, you know, people will see the real me. You're afraid of a little bit of intimacy publicly with people. How many of you have ever been in a flying car and you fell out? Anybody? I am unique in that, okay. I figured out what that was too, but if that wasn't your dream, then what do you care? And then, and then, you went to school, you went to work, and you did not have your homework or the work you were supposed to have done, and you were absolutely terrified. Anybody? Got some? Okay, you're afraid of being unprepared? All right. All those interpretations relate pretty well to what you see in your dream. But get the interpretation of this dream. Now, remember what it is. I want you to remember 
These guys are in their tents. Barley bread starts rolling into the, ca- the camp and knocks their tents over. What in the world does that mean? It means you're toast. <laughs> no, no, no. Here comes the interpretation. Not by, not by Gideon. He didn't even have to interpret this thing. As soon as Gideon, okay, so Gideon came, behold, telling this dream. This is, and this is his comrade answered him, verse 14. Well, I'm listening to your dream about the bread roll. Uh, come into the tent, knocking it over. This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, man of Israel. God's given into his hand Midian and all this camp. This is the sword of Gideon. Where do you get bread into sword? They didn't even own a single sword. Where does this interpretation come from? This guy is nuts, but here's the thing. God was in charge of all this. Gideon overhears this, and he's encouraged by it. He loves this, and he's inspired by it, and actually it says he worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, get up, people, we're going to do this, right? And he's so emboldened to do this because he hears this weird dream. This bread really is a sword. Absurd. And it only gets worse. He says, we've got 300 people, so here's what we're going to do, guys. I want you to break up into three groups of 100. With your right hand, I want you to take the trumpet, and I want you to blow it. With your left hand, I want you to break the pitcher, which I guess makes some noise, and hold up the torch that's in there. And then I want you to yell, after you, I guess, after you blow the horn, because you can't blow the horn and yell at the same time. But you've got to do one of these together. For, uh, uh, for, uh, a sword for the Lord and Gideon. They do not have a sword. They're going to yell that we've got swords, but they don't. It's a lie, a bluff. And that's what I want you 300 to do. And you know what they did? They did it. They followed his instructions. They break up into three groups of 100, scatter out there, and they, on Gideon's command, they do the right-hand trumpet, the left-hand torch after breaking the pitcher, and they yell for the Lord and for Gideon. And it puts the entire, all those people out there laying out in the open, they're terrified. They wake up, they're startled, they're jolted awake, and they start slaughtering each other, which is not all that unusual in the Old Testament. That happens a lot when God fights for them. It's a battle that obviously, Israel does win, but it's pretty clear it's not them who do it, right? It's one of those things where God gives them the victory and they do something, they have to do something, but it's obvious, isn't it? It's God who does it. That's the way God works. He gets them to do it, they win this battle, and they have this great victory. Totally unexplainable, it makes no sense. Some, exa- some, some things to observe from this to help you in your battle because you're going to be battling this week with all the stuff of the world that's out there first you need to learn to see yourself as God sees you quit looking in the mirror using your own judgment of yourself so many times this happens Gideon is hiding in a wine press and God calls a mighty warrior he's seeing what he's going to do not what he's done but Gideon only sees himself as he's always seen in the mirror he sees himself in circumstances he sees himself from the eyes of the enemy you may remember the first time the spies went out to to spy out Jordan they come back and say oh all our enemies think we look like grasshoppers they think we're a bunch of wimps and so let's act like a bunch of wimps 
You know what God says of you? You're more than conquerors through him who loved you. You're children of God. He gives you armor. He considers you his warrior. That's true of every believer. If we could learn to look at ourselves through the eyes of God rather than ourselves, and I think I see this in the world when everybody's going around defining themselves by their own desires, their own thoughts, their own anxieties, rather than letting them see themselves through the eyes of God. And what's what, that's what Gideon needed, and that's what we need. See yourself through the eyes of God. Trust what God says rather than what you seem to see. Second, before Gideon led the army, he needed to know God's favor and presence. And God does that fleece thing. I'm not encouraging you to do a fleece thing. But do you know that you have God's favor? Do you know that you are a child of God? Do you know that you have his presence? He doesn't have to. You don't have to hang out a fleece. What you need to do is look at the cross, which he makes us look at very clearly every Sunday morning we gather around the table. He makes us fix our eyes on that cross and realize we are God's favored people, not because of how great we are, but because of how great he is, and we are in him. We have his favor. We look at the cross and know that, and we also have his presence. And so he says, all authority has been given me on heaven and earth, and he says, here's what I want you to go out and do. I want you to go out and fight the world, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You have his favor, and you have his presence. Quit acting like you don't. Number three. This interesting thing that happens in chapter 7, verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. Before he runs back to the army and secures the victory in this courageous thing he did, the first thing, he pauses and he worships. Now, Sunday morning worship. I like Sunday night worship. I even like Wednesday night worship. But what Gideon does here is not your regular scheduled worship, as important as that is. This is in his normal battle life. This is it throughout the week where he's trying to live his life and fight off the world in its, in its attempt to draw him in. And in the middle of that, there's this moment of clarity. When he sees God's favor, when he sees what God is doing, and he recognizes God's working in my life right now. And he pauses and he has worship. And it probably wasn't all that long. We don't talk about this a lot in Churches of Christ that I've been a part of. We talk about making sure the five acts are all included in Sunday morning. But there are moments when you will recognize and know that God is providing you an insight. He's providing you something of affirmation in the middle of your regular daily life and you need to be willing to once in a while take a pause and worship your God in the midst of your normal life, an unscheduled, totally spontaneous worship time of your God. It's a gift he gives you of clarity and he took it right before the battle. And finally, I'd say this, God provided for the victory. He used God's provisions, but he didn't have a sword. Not typical fighting stuff. But he took what he had, trumpets, pitchers, bowls, uh, torches, and their voices, and he used it to fight. And not always do we have the things we'd like to fight with, but we're told in Mark chapter 9, if God puts a cup of water in your hand, use it. And he's told, we're told other times, if you have a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish in you, use it. Do that to do the good that God wants you to do. 
And that leads to what the light really is, I think, in this story and our story is doing what God tells you to do. I, uh, the one thing that I find perplexing is what, how exactly did Gideon explain to the 300 what they were supposed to do to take on this unnumbered enemy, this huge mass of the opponent, and all they had was a horn to blow, a jar to break, and a torch to hold up. But somehow he told them in such a way that they believed him because that's what God told him, and they did it. We need to do the same thing. Just do what God tells us to do. I know we live in this sexualized world. Clothing fashions are that way. Behaviors of people are that way. If you're still a virgin when you're 16, you're mocked and shamed and ridiculed, and the world is so sexually charged, and we've got we've to accommodate that some in our lives, right? But what does God ask us to do? I want you to shine your light by actually being pure. We'll all be mocked. You might be. But the way God chooses to use it, you know that weapon that, we, that, that the world comes at us, you have a different weaponry? I want you just to be sexually pure. I want you to believe in him enough to honor sexual purity in a world that doesn't. That's light. And then the speech pollution we hear all around us, bad language and rude and obnoxious comments toward each other, crude speech flowing freely everywhere, in the air, right? All the time. What does God ask us to do? To have speech seasoned with grace. Well, that's not going to do anything. That's not going to offset all the noise. But all God asks you to do is do that and let him do the rest. Do what he asks you to do. Be the light. And let him do the rest with it as he wants to in his time. Don't grumble and complain all the time, we're told. I'm hearing that a lot in the world, right? Don't be, the world's hateful, it's judgmental, it's rude, it's constantly getting back at each other and having these fights even on Facebook with people and, and, and social media. And, so, and in the midst of all that, God says, I want you to be forgiving people. Bear with, be kind, be compassionate. While the world is trying to pursue material things, not be generous, not be generous toward God or anybody else, and have all the to- toys of humanity that we can, can, can accumulate, he actually asks us to fight back with contentment and frugality and self-control. Puny, war- puny weapons, aren't they? And you'll be tempted to think the same as the world that we're raised in. There's so much more powerful weapons that they've got than we do. I know. But you got this passage in 2 Corinthians again, right? Though you live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. It's totally otherworldly weapon. And yes, the world looks at it and says, kind of laughs at us, scoffs at us, right? I just challenge you before you leave tonight, Engage the battle and fight the war that we're fighting this week, but do it on God's terms. Do it on God's strategy, which is to shine your light. Do exactly what God asks us to do. And as, oh, it's backward, it's crazy, it's insufficient, it's irrelevant, it's old-fashioned. I get all that. But that's what God asks us to do. It's unlike anything you'll see in the world. And I don't blame you for being skeptical and tentative. I'm just asking you to do it anyway or God is, shine that light. 
Do what God asks you to do. As backward as it may feel. And see what he does with it. Let God take care of the rest. You shine your light. And let that be your battle strategy as God has given you. If you are a believer, a Christian who's already bowed your knee to Jesus, this is not really an option you choose. These are the battle things that God has given us. King Jesus has said, this is your armor. This is how you live. If you're not a believer, it may sound really strange. But we need more lights in this world. It can help us to have more lights in the world. And if you are tottering between deciding whether to be a disciple or not, I don't know that this is going to move you or not to think that that's what I go out and fight with. But that's what King Jesus says. And we would urge you to submit, bow to King Jesus tonight, submit to him, name him as Savior of your life, be washed in the waters of baptism, rise to walk a new life, and pick up your light and let it shine as you leave this building. It's going to feel insufficient and irrelevant. But you're going to win with it. But you're going to know there's no way it was you. And that's how God wants it. That he gets the glory, not you. We are here to get the glory for our Father. So let's just do what he asked and let him take care of the rest. If you're subject to the invitation tonight, it's now available as we stand, as we sing together.